Our sermon text this morning as we continue through the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament is Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through chapter 6 and verse 9. You can find that printed in your worship folder if you want to follow along. Ecclesiastes 5, 8, hear God's word. If you see a province If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there is yet higher ones over them. But this is a gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivate fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun for the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God has not given him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun nor known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over and enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than a wandering of the appetite. This also is a vanity and a striving after wind. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that you would again work through the proclamation of your word. Let your spirit attend unto it. 
that it might work its way into our hearts and that you might conform us to the image of Christ our Lord through the power of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Jesus was teaching his disciples during his earthly ministry in regards to his kingdom that he was building, he said this in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And by tying together this matter of treasure, what we treasure, and the heart, Jesus is getting at the point of wanting us to see that what we pursue in this life, what we treasure the most, is a reflection of who we are. Are we a child of God, redeemed through the grace of God, through faith alone in Christ? Do we treasure Him above all other things, or do we treasure something else? How we view our earthly possessions, our money, our wealth, or the lack of them, is a heart matter. It is a worship matter, which is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in that same text says you cannot serve God and money. Now Solomon, the preacher king, the author of Ecclesiastes, takes us into a deep dive into that reality, into that truth in this text as he is meditating and reflecting upon life under the sun, life in this world He gazes into the treasure trove of human hearts and how they understand and interact with earthly riches and wealth and possessions, money. He knows, after all, that as humans, we crave wealth and money. We are always searching for more as humans. No matter where we are in our life, rich or poor, we want more. And even some in the church cater to that craving of the human heart to gain possessions and wealth. And they've manufactured another gospel. It is not the gospel. It does not save. It is a false gospel. And you will hear preachers telling people that they can have health and wealth if they simply have enough faith and send them some sort of seed money to some particular ministry. And God will bless them with a Cadillac and a nice house and a beautiful life and everything they ever wanted. And people flock to those kind of churches. Why is that? Because the human heart craves, it desires that kind of life. It desires wealth and money and possessions. It treasures the things of this earth. I mean, possessions, they they promise enjoyment and satisfaction in in a Disney fantasy world happily ever after. But as Solomon, the preacher king, gazes into that treasure trove of the human heart that craves wealth, he doesn't find a world of happiness, a carefree wonder of Disney fantasy, but he sees darkness and danger, misery and death. 
Now, as we start to look into this text, I'm going to hopefully not bore you with technicalities, but lift the hood off for a moment and how we need to understand this passage being arranged, because I think it's going to help us see the main idea that Solomon is trying to take us to. You see, Ecclesiastes 5.8 through 6.9 are arranged in what is called a chiasm. That is a, an ancient literary device where it takes corresponding thoughts that are far apart from each other and brings them together to a point in the middle of the text. So it looks like the Greek letter key or our English letter X. And so we see that there is this parallelism here where it starts at the beginning of 5, 8 through 12 and it parallels with verses 7 through 9 at the end there of our text in the middle of chapter 6. So hopefully if you're trying to follow along, that is where we're going. If I jump around, it's because I'm trying to follow the way Solomon organized this material to bring us to that point where he wants us to see where our treasure truly should lie. So the first thing he shows us when it comes to money and wealth is this, though, is that money or wealth really is a cruel master to serve. And that is because it cannot satisfy your soul. You can never satisfy the thirst for more by simply adding more things and more money and more wealth into your life. Now that is, isn't to say that wealth has no advantage. It does. The Bible, especially in the wisdom literature, highlights the advantages of riches. So wealth, money, possessions, they are not the problem in and of themselves. It is okay to have those. It is not a bad thing. But it is the love of money that is the problem. Being rich is not a sin, but loving riches more than loving God certainly is. A love of money means a person has made it their master, but oh, it is a tyrannical master because it never brings satisfaction to their restless soul. It never leads to peace. It only leads to the tyranny of covetousness. And the preacher begins in verse 8, drawing our attention to the ancient problem of abuse and cruelty and tyranny. He says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. Now, injustice is when people fail to love their neighbors as themselves. And unrighteousness is when people fail to love God with all their heart, soul, and strength. And that is why the preacher speaks in this text of not simply wealth, money, and treasure, but the love of money and treasure and wealth. See, what you love, you worship. And what you worship you serve, and what you serve will have an effect on how you live, which will affect how you treat others. And if you love money and love wealth, it leads to much oppression of others. And the preacher says, don't be amazed then. This is the way the world is. You see this injustice and this unrighteousness. This is common. 
It is normal in this sinful, fallen, and corrupt world. And that corruption is often tied to this love of money. And so the preacher observes here, he says there's a high official, official a magistrate, a, a king, or, or some other government official, and he's watched by a higher, and there is yet another that watches over him. And what he means here is that while a person is using others, being oppressive, engaging in unrighteousness and injustice, there is another person over him doing the same to him. And to that person, there are still others doing the same to them. You see, tyranny and abuse and oppression flow from this love of money and it is not limited only to those at the top of the ladder. It happens up and down. The preacher says in verse 9, this is a gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivate fields. This is a really difficult text to actually translate from Hebrew. And if you have different English versions, you might see it expressed slightly differently as we try to wrestle with that Hebrew language and and put it in a way that we can understand as English speakers. But this here is not a positive statement. That's what you need to know. It is a negative one. The point here, when he says this is a gain for land, he's simply saying this is the way of life. This is the way economies work. This is normal, the profit of a land. A king will be committed to cultivating fields, not necessarily for the good of others, but for the good of himself. He's pursuing more and gaining more and more and adding to his own wealth. Kings want more, so they plant fields for themselves fields that they will often take from others and that is how the king uh, the economy of their kingdom functions in other words everyone wants to get ahead of another and so they push and they shove in this tyrannical spiral to get what their hearts desire the unlimited riches but boy what a cruel master That love of money truly is, for it never satisfies their soul. You always need to cultivate another field, make another dollar, gain another coin, because no amount of money can fill that God-shaped hole in the heart of every human that He alone can fill. The preacher says, when goods increase, in verse 11 of chapter 5, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? In other words, the more you gain, the more you make, the more problems arise. The more expenses come with additional wealth. The rich man with his mansion will need caretakers to take care of it for him, to keep it up. He does not have the time for that. And his beautiful gardens need gardeners to keep them beautiful. His luxurious meals need cooks and chefs to prepare them. Additional fields need to be cultivated and they need more workers then. And so while the wealth increases, so do the costs. And there is no satisfaction, no end point. One must keep growing in their treasury, just to keep up with the expenses. They can't get ahead. And it leads to this restlessness. As the preacher says in verse 12, sweet is the sleep of the laborer whenever he eats a little or much, 
But the full stomach of the rich man, it will not let him sleep. Well, what about the poor, though? Are they at an advantage? Are things better for them? And if the love of money leads to no satisfaction, then surely those with little or no money must have an advantage. Well, the preacher says, well, not necessarily. Because after all, the problem isn't what you have. It's what you love. And those without may also have this love of money that they strive for. In verses 7 through 9, again a parallel of verses 8 through 12 of chapter 5, so 6, 7 through 9, we read, All the toil of man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? He's asking rhetorical questions. Better is the sight of the eyes than a wandering of the appetite. This also is a vanity and a striving after wind. And the, the main idea here in verse 7 is that no matter what one gains, again, they are not satisfied. And it doesn't matter if you are a fool or if you are wise, you still need your next meal. Eventually, you will all become hungry again. And so it is with life. It doesn't matter if a man is rich or poor or wise or fool. He will always need something else. The wise has no advantage over the fool. Even though he may be better and more skilled and more apt at labor and finding provision, eventually he'll still need to eat again. And so to the poor who knows how to conduct himself, that is to say he knows how to, to survive in the world, where to find a meal, where to get the things he needs. But he too is never satisfied with that. So the wealthy king is not satisfied with more wealth and the poor is not satisfied when his basic needs are met by those things. And so they always desire more. They want more. And that leads them into this tyranny of the love of money. Both the rich and the poor are tormented in their souls by that insatiable desire to have more, which leads to the second thing we see here in the text. That torment is a restlessness that leads to great misery in our lives. It is an unsettledness. A restlessness that comes from a lack of satisfaction brought on by the idol of wealth multiplying itself then in the miseries of life. And the preacher gives us three examples of those miseries that come from this restless soul. The first is the very fleeting nature of wealth itself. It is a source of great anxiety and stress and strain and worry. Money comes in and money goes. As quickly as you earn it, you can also lose it. With riches comes liability. The preacher says in chapter 5, 13 and 14, This is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. 
Love of money, making an idol, is certainly a harmful investment. It can actually bring harm to the person's life and also the lives of those whom they care about most deeply. And the preacher says this is a grievous evil, a, a sickening tragedy. To suddenly lose everything in a bad venture? Well, maybe it seemed good at the moment. But anything can happen. Markets are unpredictable. We don't know how the economy will go. Things can turn on a dime. And to lose everything suddenly in a simple change, in a moment, is truly a great calamity. A recent example of this we saw back in 2008, of course, with the last global economic crisis, and it certainly feels like we're teetering on another, if not already in it. If you remember, housing markets crashed, banks were hit hard with great fiscal losses, and a great many of people lost a lot of money. And some of those people, even high-profile CEOs, CFOs, took their own lives in great despair over what happened. And it is that fleeting nature of money, the unpredictability of it, that leads to it being a cruel master. There is always anxiety and fretting over the future when you love money more than loving God. The second misery, though, that comes from this restlessness in our soul has to do with the end of our life. And that is that anything we gain, we cannot keep. Death is the end of all our earthly treasures. The, the preacher again turns our attention to the reality of the grave in 15 and 16 of chapter 5. He speaks of, of the wealthy man. He says, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hands. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? You brought nothing into this world and you take nothing out of it. All the toil, all the work, all the time, the energy put into building up a person's wealth, it is only temporal. You only have it in this life. In Luke 12, Jesus tells a parable of a wealthy man who continued to grow in his riches, so much so that he had to keep building bigger barns to hoard all that he had. And the rich man said to himself, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But he hadn't thought about the end of his life. He did not regard that specter of death that hung over him, his own mortality. And so Jesus continues in the parable, and he says, But God said to him, to the, the rich man, Fool, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one, says Jesus, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 
Solomon, the preacher king, describes a similar situation here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. He says, there's an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is a vanity. It is a a grievous evil. A sickening calamity. Man is given so much by God on earth, yet he is not satisfied in those things. And then comes death. And another, not him, enjoys all that he earns. Because you cannot take the treasures of this earth with you. In the end, they're just earthly treasures. And if that is the case, it leads one to ask the question then, as they approach this idea of money and wealth from this under the sun, this earthly perspective, well then what's the point? What's the point of living? Which is the third misery of life that comes when one makes money their God. And that is joylessness. An inability to enjoy the things God does give you. And this joylessness that comes when you worship wealth and money and possessions more than you worship God, it is a punishment of God. It is a consequence of not turning to Him. The preacher writes in verse 17 of chapter 5, Moreover, speaking of those that, that hoard and worship their money, All his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. You see, darkness in the Bible is often a picture of God's holy judgment upon sin. And meals, they're supposed to be joyous occasions, times of celebration where people enjoy God's good gifts together. But the picture here is a lonely horrible one of a man sitting in darkness with no friends and no family eating alone in unhappiness. But the darkness in his life grows even deeper still. For in the parallel in chapter 6, Solomon writes in verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his life are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he." even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. In the ancient Near East, a sign of wealth was to have many children. They're considered wealthy if that was was the case, because of course you had to feed them all. You needed the possessions, the, the wealth to be able to do so. But such a man, if he is not satisfied... If he does not enjoy this life, 
He is no better than a stillborn child. Better yet, a stillborn child does not suffer that lack of satisfaction that this man suffers in a life with no enjoyment at all. Because a life without enjoyment isn't a life. It is a wasted life, a miscarriage of life to not enjoy it. And the one who has everything but no joy has nothing. So what a terrible consequence of trying to fill the restlessness of the soul with money and wealth, earthly treasures, no joy, no peace, not even enjoyment of those things that you have, those simple gifts of God. Instead, there is anxiety and fear and hopelessness. And above all, that constant and gaping hole in the heart that is still there. And you keep shoveling things into it, but it is never full, never satisfied. Such is a wasted life. And it leads to restlessness and misery. But here's the sobering reality of this, is that one, as we've already seen, doesn't have to be wealthy to experience this kind of misery. Because the world is full of men and women in all walks of life. Those who have much and those who have little, the rich and the poor, and they are all mulling about trying to fill that hole with earthly treasure. Like dragons and fantasy stories, they try to get more and get more. You see... What this passage is really about is worship. Last week, the preacher gave us some clear imperatives when it came to worshiping God. We're to worship Him reverently, that is in fear, as He prescribes according to His Word, not irreverently in the way that we want. But the problem here in this text isn't worshiping God the wrong way. Rather, it's not worshiping God at all. The love of money is pure idolatry. And no wonder then the consequence of that sin is lonely darkness pouring from this unsatisfied heart and restless soul. Because the treasures of this earth, they weren't meant to satisfy that craving, that longing in our hearts. That whole is meant to be filled by the One who gives us all things. It's to be filled with God Himself. And when you do that, when you trust God through Christ, you do find that you can enjoy this life, even despite the difficulties and the trials and the sadness and the sorrow, there is some joy that can be found. Now, in this world, it might be a small glimpse, a small ray of light, but it is there. Because as we'll see, it is pointing to something far bigger that is yours. The preacher wants us to get to the place in this text where we treasure God by trusting Him and find our enjoyment for both life now and for all eternity. That's the main point. And it comes in verses 18 and 20 of chapter 5. Behold, 
I have seen to be a good and fitting it is to eat and to drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. In contrast to all the previous evil, all the misery from treasuring all the wrong things, here, says Solomon, is what is good and is fitting. Here's what you need to do. Eat and drink and find enjoyment in your work under the sun all the days of the life that God has given you because this is what you were made for, to enjoy these things by enjoying your God. And we've seen this thought, of course, expressed previously in Ecclesiastes. It is a call to to accept the goodness of God and rest in the provision of His grace to find enjoyment in your work, even if it seems to you to be insignificant. Find enjoyment in it because God has given it to you to provide for you, to give you something to sustain you. Enjoy the food and drink that you can, for He gives it to you. He will meet your needs. And do this because you are trusting Him who gives you all things. He gives both the wealth, the riches, whether it be great or small, and He gives you the power to enjoy those things, the ability to find joy in them. Because as we read in verse 19, this is a gift of His grace. So ultimately, it is God who gives joy. Not money, not possessions, not the food we eat or the things we drink. He alone gives joy to His people. And so we ought then to trust Him by treasuring Him. By treasuring Him above all earthly treasures. So yes, It really does come down to worship to who is your God. Again, Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot love God and money. You cannot worship God and your earthly treasures. Faith is a matter of trusting God with everything, both what you need now and for eternity. It is accepting what He does give you, what He does provide in this life until that day when He gives you more than you can imagine. You see, God's people truly are rich, even if they're poor on earth. We are united to Christ and we are promised then the inheritance of heaven itself. God is the King, the Sovereign Lord over all things. And He adopts those who are His children into His family when we come to Christ by faith. 
And he promised us an inheritance of his bountiful blessing then in Christ. But what about the suffering we even experience now? What about that injustice and that unrighteousness that Solomon talked about that we experience in this life as a result of people worshiping the wrong God and loving money more than loving God? Well, as I said, verse 20 is at the very heart of this passage and is there that we find an answer to that. Speaking to those who treasure God more than earthly treasure. He says that those people will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This life's sorrows that we experience under the sun are but a wisp of a memory. And they will soon be forgotten on that day when our faith is rewarded by sight, the sight of Christ our Lord. You know, good times, they have a way of making you forget about the bad times, right? They do. And we enjoy those moments that we celebrate together. Imagine then the greatest of good times, that eternal hope that awaits you and is there guarded by God Himself. For you are His treasure. That, a moment in eternity, or a time in eternity with Him, will erase all the sorrowful moments of this life. And so we taste a little grace now, but we'll drink of its abundance at the table of our King for all eternity then. So enjoy what you can in life under the sun. But don't treasure your riches more than you treasure God. Treasure God and not your money. Treasure God by trusting Christ with all that you have. And you will find satisfaction and joy for your restless soul. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word once again. We're thankful for what it teaches us and the goodness that is there in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, Father, we ask then that you would instill this truth upon our hearts, that we must treasure you above all things, that you would aid us by your Spirit to grow in our faith, to commit ourselves all the more to the promises that you have made to us so that we might taste of that great inheritance on the day Christ our King returns. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.